We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In a moment, I'm going to pray a brief prayer. Um, Before I do that, I'll give you a little bit of instructions. After I pray, um, I'd like you to take anywhere from three to five minutes. Read over the passage to yourself once, twice, three times. If you get captivated by a verse or an idea, then read that one ten times. Just get familiar with it. And then uh, after a few moments, a few minutes, the table leader will begin the discussion. And we base our discussion on the four questions that you find in your worship guide. What does the passage say? What does it mean? How shall I respond to the passage? And the fourth question being, is there any, uh, something along the lines of, is there anyone I need to share this, this with? Whatever I'm learning, is there anybody in your life that you can share this with? And that's kind of the basic framework for our discussion. We believe that God speaks to people to all of his people, not just through the preacher. We believe that the Holy Spirit abides in all of God's people and that he wants to speak to you and show you something in your word and that he is calling all of us to be involved. So it'll be your turn to contribute. It'll be your time to ask questions should you have questions and go for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your servant John. I thank you for his faithfulness to you from the time he was a young man until the following 60, 70 years, however long it was after that until he died. God, I thank you for his love and his heart for the people that he wrote to. And God, we receive so much of what he wrote to them. God, I thank you for his profound and deep knowledge of you. And I pray, oh God, that we may begin to walk in that knowledge and continue to walk in that knowledge. Would you radically change our lives today? as we encounter you in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been teaching through John for three months now, 
I keep, you know, I, I, if I see an idea in this letter that I think is a big idea, I usually try to learn from John what does he say about this idea in other parts of the letter. And as I've done that, almost every single week I've come to today's passage. And if you've been taking notes and you go back through them, you'll see that I've referenced verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5 of today's passage over and over again in almost every time we've taught the word God from First John. I went back, instead of starting at verse 1 today, I, I went back into verse 19. Because I believe that verse 19, 20, and 21 has so much to do with verses 1, well, with verse 1 especially. And as I looked at how other pastors and Bible teachers taught this stuff, many people group verses 19 through verse 1 because what we have there is the imagery of a family. We see God who is Father, and we see this command to love God, and we say that if someone says they love God but they hate their brother, they're a liar. And they're not real. And we, we've, we've been through that in depth uh, on a number of occasions already. So we have this family language. And, you know, none of us come from a perfect family and none of us have a perfect family. Just hang out with me at my house for 24 hours, actually just an hour, and you'll see that very quickly. Okay? You know, the family is God's idea. And his family is perfect. His family is functional. My family has some dysfunction. Your family has some dysfunction. And there, there's different levels of dysfunction within different families. We, we know that. We know and understand how that works. This family imagery is so important in the series that we're going to start in 1 John. We're going to go, or after 1 John, we're going to go into that even deeper. But this idea of family, we have to be careful to get our ideas from family about, from God. And we have to do everything we can within our control with the authority and responsibility that God has given us as individuals to make our family today to be patterned after His family. We have to be careful not to make the mistake and the error of looking at our dysfunctional family and saying, well, God's father and my dad's messed up, so I'm just... No, your dad is messed up, but the father in heaven is not. So let us not read our messed up dad into God, but let us take God and let us see him as the ideal and let us see that he is the pattern and we've fallen far short of that pattern and that standard and that's why we need Jesus. That's why we must believe the gospel so that we can be forgiven. So we've got this family imagery that is a dominant theme in these first few verses. And we get into verse 1. And John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What happens in a family? There's birth, right? Isn't that how families work? Isn't They grow. Through birth. And it's no different in the family of God. So, I ask you. We have belief and we have birth in verse 1. What happens first? I think verse 1 clearly says that the birth happens first. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And that word Christ is important. We'll talk about that later. 
But everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The birth comes first. And the faith comes. The birth is what makes us part of the family. I was born in my family, and I'm a part of the family because I was born into it. Did I have a choice to be born? That, I, I didn't have any say-so in that matter at all, and neither did you. So the birth, when we are born of God, we are birthed into His family. The birth makes us part of the family. And Scripture is not super mechanical on this, but what we can figure out is, let me make sure I say this right. It's most likely the birth took place, and in that moment, or in moments shortly thereafter, we believed in Christ. It's almost like what's happened at my house seven times in the last ten and a half years. The baby is born, and the baby realizes, okay, those two people are special. Those two people are important. And what does that baby do? The baby clings to mom especially, but the baby clings to mom and dad. That baby can't, get, can't do anything for itself. Has very little that it can contribute to its life. And they cling. They trust. They have faith. Because that's in the Bible, faith means trust. They have faith. The mama's got everything I need. Mama's going to take care of me. Daddy's going to hold me when I'm crying. They're going to provide for me. They're going to take care of me. And that birth that takes place when we come out of our mother's womb and that activity between our parents in those early days is very much like what saving faith is. We are born of God and then all of a sudden we see God in this brand new light and we trust Him and we cling to Him and we hold on to Him. And in a healthy family, we, how do we relate to the other members of the family? We love them, don't we? And John makes it clear that if we say that we love God, but that we don't love the church family, the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then the truth is that we don't love God. And this takes us to verse 3. And this is the clearest statement ever. And from time to time, I have to repent because I don't believe this verse. And I know there's somebody in here today that needs to repent because we don't, aren't always in this frame of mind. But it says this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the, one of the clearest statements ever. So two weeks ago, we saw that love was not a feeling, primarily. Love has an emotional element to it. And there is deep feeling and deep emotion that is associated with love. But love is a dynamic reality that moves us to action. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, and we looked at what love is not. And John has taught us very clearly that greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, or that we take care of the needs for someone who is in need. We've seen so much of this. But this is reality. If we say we love God, we have to keep His commandments. And the general way of thinking through this in our culture, and we've been affected by this, no doubt, is that we like to water down the gospel. We like to water down Christianity and say, I love God. But our life might not really reflect that love. It's easy for us to say, it's 
easy for us to think that Christianity is a good thing or that Jesus is pretty awesome and I know I need him in my life, but you know what? I really just kind of want to do my own thing because I like my own life and I want to do this. And we like scratch out those parts of the Bible that say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says that if you love God, you will keep his commandments. There is no loving God if you want to do things your own way. You don't love God, you love yourself. That's where you're at today. I want you to repent of that. And I want you to cast your love upon God and begin to obey His commandments. So the end of verse 3, it says His commandments are not burdensome. The King James Bible says that His commands are not grievous. In the original language, this word burdensome and grievous can be translated heavy or hard. Are the commands of God and the things that He wants you to do, are they heavy to you? Do you hear what he says, what he requires? Have you already heard something I've said today and you're like, hmm? Do you get annoyed every time you realize what God wants you to do? His commands are not burdensome. They are not heavy. And Jesus even spoke to this in Mark chapter 11. Jesus said, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you. Okay, one of these days I'm going to bring a yoke in here. I want you to see it. It's heavy. Okay, it's heavy. And some of you know what I'm talking about. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, you know, anything that restrains us, we often, we want to shake it off. We feel like they're chains. But no, the commands of God give life. The commands of God just, just, they're beautiful and they're perfect and they're necessary if we are to walk in a path of blessing. British preacher Martin Lloyd Jones says this, and I love it. He says, The way in which we show that we love God is that we keep his commands. Okay, that's just what John just said, isn't it? But Lloyd Jones goes on to say, Thus, if we love God, the commandments of necessity cannot be grievous. Our very love of Him makes us desire to keep them. And I think that's so insightful. If we love God, we're going to want to do what He says. Amen. See, our attitude messes everything up. My attitude goes south sometimes, and I know yours does too. And, 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 and yeah, we. She's like, What do you want me to do, God? Are you serious? I can't do that before I get married or I got to be honest on my taxes or I really have to go and make things right with that person. I don't want to talk to that person again. God, you want me to give that to him? God, are you crazy? He is crazy according to our standards. But no, he's not crazy. Our standards are crazy. Depends on whose standards you're going by here. The idea of God's commands not being burdensome is very closely related to what we see in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 begins with the word for. So verse 3, it says this. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I love this first part of verse 4. Do y'all see the promise in this? Do you see the promise in this? 
Theologians call this idea, this promise, the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. And this is a beautiful theme throughout all of Scripture, and it's all over 1 John. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's a promise. If you've experienced the new birth of the Spirit, you will overcome the world. You will persevere. And what I love, what this teaches us about God that is so beautiful is that God doesn't lose anybody that belongs to Him. Do you belong to God? He's not going to misplace you. He's not going to lose you when He does His laundry. He's not going to be going over to your house and make the wrong turn and never get to you. He knows those who are His. He keeps all of His children. And as we saw some over the last two weeks, we are going to be like our Father. We will be like our Savior as we obey His commands. And because we are like Him, God's going to recognize us. I look like my mom and your dad, and that's true for every one of you in here. For some of us, that's a good thing. For some of us, it's not a good thing. I'll just throw that out there. We'll talk about that later if you want to, you know? But we're going to look like our Savior. We're going to look like our Father. And God's going to know that we are His because we look like Him. And if you want to go deeper into this, look at John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, he's not talking about family or brothers and sisters, but he's talking about sheep and shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. But in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, he says, and they follow me. See, the sheep know their shepherd. And see, Jesus is the perfect shepherd. He's the good shepherd because none of his sheep get away. And none of his sheep get picked off by a wolf. He says, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. And he says of the sheep, he says, they don't follow strangers. But when a stranger comes to one of God's sheep, when a stranger comes to some, a child of God who's been born into the family of God, we identify them as a stranger. We know they're a stranger. And that's the whole idea of Antichrist that we've seen throughout 1 John. Those Antichrists are strangers. They are not from Jesus. They are not of God. But the first part of verse 4 is beautiful. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now this speaks to what we call eternal security. I became a Christian when I was 13. And when I was 17, I started coming here. And eternal security is commonly spoken of like this. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Do I believe that? Absolutely. But... The people at this church, when I started coming here almost 20 years ago, they believed that. Ah, y'all are crazy. What are you talking about? That can't be true. But they showed me in Scripture where that is true. But over the years, as I've examined the Scripture, while I agree that once saved, always saved, I think there's a better way to say it. I, I think we should probably say that once we're saved, we're always saved. But we have to know that once we're saved, we're forever following Jesus. Now, it will be five steps forward and one step back sometimes. There'll be seasons here and there that aren't good, but God disciplines His children who He loves, and He brings us back into the family. But this idea of everyone being born of God who overcomes the world, it means that once you're saved, you're going to keep following Jesus. You're going to become more like Him. So you will be forever following Him. Once you're saved, you will always be saved. So this idea of overcoming is beautiful. 
what is the nature of overcoming the world? And what is the nature of the world? What does it mean when John says the world? Is he talking about this wood? Is he talking about the parking lot and your driveway at home and the leaves that you're going to have to start raking up next month and the grass that you're tired of cutting right now? Is he talking about that? No, he's not talking about that at all. But So what is the nature of overcoming and what is the nature of the world? Some people will tell you, well, the world is evil. That's very obvious. Okay, we, we, We've seen that already, especially in chapter 2. They'll tell you that the world is evil. And our ideas as Christians is sometimes we need to get as far away from this world as we can. And throughout history, people have set up monasteries. We don't want to be like them, so we're going to go and we're going to hide. And we don't realize that the sinful nature is in ourself, that the world is alive in ourself, even if we get away from all the sinners in the world. So that doesn't really do much. So we're not necessarily called to run from the world and get away from the world. But the Christian is one who overcomes the world while we live in the middle of it. You can't get away from sinners. And I can't either. And you shouldn't want to get away from sinners. You are a sinner. Right? Don't you still struggle with it? Yes, you do. So the Christian is one who will overcome the world while we are in the middle of it. And because of the first part of verse 4, the promise in that, we can be assured that we will overcome because we have been born of God. I love Romans 8.37. Paul writes, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What is the nature of overcoming? It has to do with conquering something. It has to do with being in this battle and defeating and fighting and having victory. So, what is the nature of the world? That we are overcoming. In verses 4 and 5, we see the world three times. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And in 1 John 2.15, John said, Don't love the world or the things of the world. Is he talking about our grass? Are we supposed to hate our house? Are we supposed to not like our car or the trees? No, he's not saying that. He doesn't mean that we can't have hobbies. He doesn't mean that we can't enjoy a sunset. We can't enjoy a hike through the mountains or the beach. He doesn't mean that you can't enjoy hobbies or that you can't participate in politics or in business. He's not saying that it's wrong to go to a dance or watch a PG-13 or rated R movie. That is not what John has here at all. But John told us what the world is. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, This is what's in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things that get us off. It's not our sinful co-worker. It's inside of you. See, we're the problem. And sin exists in us. And we can't get away from the world by going to live in a monastery. But if we have faith in Christ, we overcome the world and we have victory. Look at the second part of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Anybody got Nike shoes on? Or a Nike product? All right, we got one over there. See the check mark on her shoe? All right, Nike. You know, I've had a number of Nikes over the year. Why am I talking about Nike? This word victory is Nike. Yep, yep, N-I-K-E. Yep, 
Now, their alphabet, Greek alphabet is different from ours, but when you transliterate it, put it in English. It's, it's N-I-K-E. And this is the only time in the Bible this word is used. Victory! Every time you see a Nike product, if you're walking through the mall, or if you see an ad on Facebook for Nike, I want you to think victory. Okay? I want you to be reminded that if you believe in Christ, you have the victory. Amen. It's yours. You possess it now. You're going to possess it even more fully at some point in the future. So this is the victory that has overcome or conquered the world. What is the victory? It's our faith. It's not your church membership. It's not your baptism. It's not your spiritual experience that you had on a mountaintop with God two years ago. Okay? It's your faith. See, you can't have the mountaintop experience every day, can you? You don't. But you can believe God every day. You can trust God every day. And Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So you don't have it yet, but you're sure it's going to come. It also says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. You don't see it yet, but you're convinced that it's true or that it's going to happen or that it's going to be yours. See, strong or mature faith is faith where there is assurance of the things that we've been promised by God that we don't have yet. Strong and mature faith has to do with a conviction that all of the things that we haven't seen yet are real and true. Hebrews 11 tells the story of Abraham from the Old Testament. How did Abraham exercise faith? Well, God said, go. And God didn't tell him where, but Abraham went. And Abraham trusted God who commanded him to go. And for Abraham, the command of God was not burdensome. See, Abraham knew that God was telling him the right thing. He trusted God, and that's faith. He knew that Abraham was telling him the right thing, and that God was going to be with him on the entire trip, and that God was going to empower him for everything that he had to do on the journey. Isn't this a picture of our life? See, faith has to do with looking to something. I saw some of y'all bring food in earlier. And I looked at that, and I said, you know what? I'm going to trust that that food is going to satisfy me. I'm going to trust that that food is going to nurture me. Faith has to do with looking upon something, taking something for yourself, receiving it. Sometimes if I get stuck in a sermon, I'm just trying to prepare for it, I'm trying to get ready for it, or whether it's something on the farm with an animal or whatever, I'm going to call somebody who knows what they're doing. Or I'm going to watch YouTube. Or I'm going to find a book that I've got. I'm going to do something. And what am I doing when I make that phone call? What am I doing when I search for that video? I'm trusting that I'm going to get what I need from whatever I find. I'm going to call Pastor Lou in Tampa, who was Jennifer and I's pastor for years. I stayed with him just a few weeks ago in Tampa. I'm going to contact them knowing and believing that whatever I don't have, they have. And I'm going to be able to get it from them. And then I'm going to be better off because of it. I'm trusting them to do something for me. And that is very much what Hebrews 12, 2 says. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's what faith is. We get that wrong sometimes. You know, we, we can have our ideas of faith that aren't always entirely biblical. How do we figure it out? We study the Bible. We ask people questions. That's why we do what we do here every week. We want this to be a safe place to ask questions. 
there's a few counterfeits to faith. Sometimes we think that if we have the externals, if we look right on the outside and we do the right things, that yeah, that's faith. That's what God wants us to do. You know, and in its worst form, we look really good on Sunday mornings, but from Sunday afternoon until Saturday night, we, we don't look good at all. And we're one thing here, and we're another thing entirely elsewhere. So that, that, that is, that's kind of the worst form of focusing on externals. Faith is not only rule following. Faith is not cleaning the outside of the cup. So that while the inside of us is full of dead men's bones. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatians because they thought that the Christian faith was just them following all the rules plus the Jewish law and that if they did all that, God might let them in. And that's not the gospel at all. That is not what faith is at all. Roman Catholicism, which some of us come from, says that if you do these things that we tell you to do, then you're going to be good with God and you'll eventually get to Him. That's not in the Bible. You can do everything right and go to hell if you haven't believed God. You can do... You can't do everything right because it's impossible. But you can look really, really good on the outside. Faith is not just cleaning up the outside. Faith has to do with something internal. And that which is internal flows to the outside. And that's how our life gets cleaned up. Some people say that faith is just head knowledge. Well, I've got all the right answers. But that's not true either. James, who was Jesus' little brother, said that you believe God is one. Well, that's fine. Even the demons believe that. The demons actually know more about God than you do because they used to see Him face to face. Head knowledge. Mere head knowledge does not transform us. But faith has to do with head knowledge. There is an intellectual element to it. But it also, there also is an, agree, uh, 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 an aspect of trust. Uh, I'm sorry, of we agree and we trust. Everyone say knowledge, agreement, and trust. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. Faith has all three. See, you can know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, but you can't, but you don't agree with it. You know, there's universities all over our world. There's people in our neighborhood. They've heard that story, but they don't agree with it. They reject it. They say it's not true. Now, I know a ton of people who know the story, and they say, yeah, that's true. But they're missing that third element of trust. They have knowledge. They agree with it. But it hasn't become personal to them yet. They don't believe it for themselves. And they're missing out on it. So you can have knowledge. You can have agreement. And Roman Catholicism says that's all you need. But I believe that faith has to do with us actually going to Jesus. And calling out to Him personally. Faith is what Goliath had, or David had when he killed Goliath. Right before he killed Goliath, David was the little guy talking to the big, powerful, handsome King Saul. And King Saul thought he was crazy. King Saul tried to give all his armor, and David's like, I don't need that armor. I, I can't wear that. But David spoke in faith. David believed that God wanted him to kill Goliath. Now, if any of you say that today, you're wrong. Okay, things were different back then. David believed that God wanted him to kill Goliath. And David said to Saul, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
David had not conquered Goliath yet, but he knew that God wanted him to, and he knew he could do it because of God. And then David went forward with his slingshot. Most of you if, you, if you grew up in church, you probably know the story. And he speaks to this Philistine who was at least twice his size. And he says, you come to me with a sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. See, David wasn't going forward in his own strength. He was going forward in the power of God. And that's what faith is. That's how we conquer. We go forward in the power of God. And David says to him, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. And David goes on to say, I'm going to do this so that all the earth knows that there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly, which meant everyone there, will know that God does not save with sword and spear. But the battle is the Lord's. And David spoke to this giant and he says, God is going to give you into my hand. And isn't that exactly what happened? See, that story of David and Goliath isn't about you conquering your giants. It's about us trusting God and making God look really great and really wonderful. See, David had faith. Remember Hebrews 11? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When David said, you know, God's delivered me from the paw of the bear and the, the mouth of the lion, he's going to give me this ungodly giant who is our enemy also, he was assured that what he was hoping for was actually going to happen. We get to verse 5, 1 John 5, 5. And the question is asked, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And verse 5 shows us the object of our faith. Verse 5 shows us who it actually is that we believe in. See, one of the ways we get faith wrong is we think we believe in God, but we might be trusting God some and ourselves some. Or we might just be trusting totally ourselves. Okay, we, we get that wrong sometimes. Well, verse 5 says that our faith is in Jesus, the Son of God. And therefore, if our faith is in Him, we will overcome the world. So my wife, 12 almost 12 and a half years. She is the object of, of my love. She receives love from me that I offer to no one else. My love is directed toward her in a special way, and she receives my love in a very special way. This is very much like what faith is in Christ. Amen. We trust Him in a special way that we trust no one else. And we trust and we believe specifically what John says here. That Jesus is the Son of God. That God is Father. And that He's existed with His Son in heaven for all eternity. And there came a point where God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all took part in creation. And then thousands of years after that, there came a part where God the Father sent God the Son to the earth and he became a man and he was a perfect man and a sinless man and he was an obedient son and he did exactly what God the Father told him to do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah or, or the, uh, the Christ as verse 1 says? 
See, we go wrong today when we want to make Jesus who we want him to be. We like the idea of him being a fantastic teacher. We like the idea of him being a really good man. But when we realize that he is God in the flesh, that he was God's anointed Messiah, we often can say, you know what, I don't think I want to do this all the way. I want to ask you today in every single way to put your trust fully, wholly, and completely in Jesus. That's what I want to ask you to do. Now this idea of commands being burdensome, we are not going to get into verses 6 through 12 today. This idea of God's commands being burdensome, why does this happen sometime? When you hear what God wants you to do, when He says you can't do this or you have to do that, do you get upset with Him? It is time for you to let go of your own life, if that's where you're at. If you've never let go of your own life, it is time to let go. Now, some of us in here, you do know God, but you still feel like His commands are burdensome. There are several reasons that you may feel that way. And there's others probably that I'm not going to mention. But sometimes as Christians, we believe that we have to obey God so that He loves us. It gets the cart before the horse. The caboose does not pull the train. The engine pulls the train. If you believe that you have to obey God in order for Him to love you, and if you believe that the better you obey Him, the more you love Him, I want to ask you to change your thinking. Because that's not how it works. If you do think that way, then yes, His commands are burdensome because you have to perform and you have to get it right. And you know that you can't get it right as much as you should. And that's why it feels so powerfully like a burden. Sometimes we feel like God's commands are burdensome because we still think we can obey Him perfectly. Maybe I did really good for three months and then boom! Something got me. If that's where you are, I want you to know that you don't understand the full gravity of sin. I've been in sin since my eyes opened earlier this morning. My attitude has been... I've been in sin in ways that I don't even realize. And that's just the nature of sin. And that is true not just for me, but for all of us in here. You can't obey God unless you give yourself to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the commands of God feel burdensome because we are trying to obey Him in our own strength and that we are not confessing God and walking in His Holy Spirit. So these three things I've just mentioned are not of faith. See, our victory is of faith. Our victory is of trust. And God's commands will be burdensome to us when we do not have faith in God. You will not have Nike. You will not have victory if that is what you're doing, trusting in yourself and trying to get it together. What is the invitation today? The invitation is come to the table, receive of Christ, drink of his blood, eat of his flesh. Casting all your care upon Him. And if you're not ready to do that yet, the invitation is just to believe. Say yes to God. That's what I ask you to do. Let's pray.